This is Gulf Coast Life from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. The Sunshine State animal, the Florida panther, is also among Florida's most endangered species. But a boon for the panther and many other species came in 2021 with passage of the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act, which aims to create and maintain a contiguous wildlife corridor throughout the state. In this year's legislative session, it's led to hundreds of millions of dollars in the budget to create a wildlife connection between the Big Cypress National Preserve and the Caloosahatchee River. Also, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is looking to expand or establish a new conservation area in southwest Florida. Still, panthers face some new and ongoing threats. One newer threat has been seen with the emergence of a neurologic disorder called feline leukomyelopathy, or FLM, which causes the cats to lose their coordination to the degree that walking can become difficult, much less hunting. And what we know about FLM currently is distressingly limited. Panthers also face threats from a number of proposed new developments in Lee and Collier counties. Joining me now to explore current opportunities, threats, and challenges facing the endangered Florida panther is Amber Crooks. She's the environmental policy manager for the Conservancy of Southwest Florida based in Naples. Amber Crooks, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Thanks for having me. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On X, formerly known as Twitter, we're at WGCU Use the hashtag GCL. So Amber, as you so succinctly put it in our email correspondence, we're going to be exploring the good, the bad, and the mm-hmm. ugly. Let's start with the good, and, and that concerns the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Uh, for the uninitiated, first, what is the Florida Wildlife Corridor Initiative? Yeah. Yeah, it's really exciting sort of watershed momentum that we're having. And the first time in my knowledge, you know, working in this field for 15, 16 years, of a real focus on the needs for connectivity and connecting our lands across the state of Florida through a Florida Wildlife Corridor. And my favorite part about this initiative is that the panther is sort of the the figurehead of this movement in a way. Um, There's been even a film called Path of the Panther that was recently um, in theaters and actually still streaming on Hulu and Disney. And it so beautifully and profoundly tells the story of this need for connectivity and a focus on the panther in Southwest Florida indeed. So so just to succinctly sum up, it's about more than just creating, you know, and preserving wild spaces, but making sure that they're not isolated by development and just small, unconnected areas, mm-hmm. having a contiguous wildlife corridor. That's right. And mm-hmm. it's a need for so many of the flora and fauna here in the state. But for the panther, it's really imperative because right now our population sits at somewhere between 120 to 230 Florida panthers. And in order for the panther to really truly be recovered, where the threat of extinction is removed, we would need really three populations of 240 panthers each. That's what the science shows us. And so those different populations are going to be, of course, not just here in southwest Florida. They're going to need to be in other parts of the state, perhaps even other states, to sort of recreate that prior range that the panther had. Um, Right now, we're only at about 5% of that historic range. And so when those populations hopefully in the future are um, established, we're going to still need them to be connected through these uh, c- corridors and connections. 
All right. And I understand the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act um, it became law in 2021 with unanimous bipartisan support. What has happened perhaps more recently that might be good news for the panther? Yes, this is exciting. Uh, there's been a lot of investment on um, kind of, you know, after this act uh, was approved in light of uh, the Florida Wildlife Corridor expedition movies and the Path of the Panther movie, really mm-hmm. building on this momentum. Now in this past legislative session um, and recently as well with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, a couple of big initiatives we've been hearing about. Um, the first is a large amount of money, about $426 million, that have been appropriated in the budget for a connection between the Big Cypress Preserve and the Caloosahatchee. And then additionally, we've heard from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who's another player, that they're looking to expand the refuge or perhaps establish a new conservation area in southwest Florida that would also you know, look to achieve land conservation and uh, connections. So again, this is looking to expand the potential range of where these cats could conceivably live. And I think also help secure where they're at now, because as we'll probably talk later, there are some threats in terms of roads, developments, mines, and we need to preserve the corridors where they're at as well here in Southwest Florida, and then make those those green linkages secured all the way up through over I-4 and into other parts of Florida. And, and I know that in uh, May, the Florida cabinet voted unanimously to a proposal to add um, more than 39,000 acres to the Florida Wildlife Corridor for permanent protection. Certainly a win for Florida's ecology. I was looking at a map of where these spaces are. They certainly include areas around southwest Florida, but it didn't seem like there was much in it that was um, below or south of the Caloosahatchee River. So would that have much impact on panthers, do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, of course, we're focused in southwest Florida, but we have partners that we're working with across the state that are trying to help build connections sort of proactively. I mean, there are male Florida panthers that travel pretty far and wide. There was a male panther all the way into Georgia even. And now we do have female panthers um, north of the Clusatchee River after a few decades of not having them. Um, but have we seen kittens north of the Clusatchee there's, there's been kittens, but, you know, we're not sure if they you know, made it into adulthood or, you know, how many might remain. But it was a huge milestone and and it started the agencies really thinking about building connections. Um, In fact, there's been task forces that have been working on trying to build connections from the Caloosahatchee River all the way to I-4 and beyond. And so DOT is even um, investing in some underpasses and overpasses even at I-4 for large mammals like the panther, proactively thinking ahead to build the connections from South Florida all the way up. And we know those wildlife... um you know, overpasses or underpasses to sort of get around these major highways. They work. The animals yeah. use them when we build them. Yeah, it's probably the most surefire way to try to um, give that safe passage. You know, there's been other techniques that have been tried. And, um, you know, anything that relies on the motorist to change their actions is slightly <laughs> less uh, um, positive um, than something that's that's passive, like a structure. And they, they tend to be a bit uh, expensive, but they are a good way to try to uh, reduce the amount of panthers being hit by vehicles, which is their number one documented cause of mortality. All right. I think that's a perfect segue into 
the bad. Mm. Uh, you know, as a newscaster for more than a decade here at a station that because of the Florida Panthers sort of unique iconic status and its protection status, when there is a Panther death, we tend to report on it. I've certainly noticed in 2023, we're not doing that very much. Mm. Um, there's been just six Panther deaths documented mm. in the state in the calendar year so far, all attributed to vehicle strikes. That's far below levels we've seen in past years. There were 27 documented Panther deaths in 2022 by comparison. Now, this lack of roadkill Panther fatalities on the surface might seem positive, but that might not be the full story. Yeah, it's sort of uh, funny to say it that way, isn't it? Um, Usually less deaths is a positive thing, Um, you know, but it is you know, drawing questions in my mind. Um, we've heard in the past from the agencies when the number was really high, there's a lot of road kills, a lot of mortalities in a year, you know, it'd be often attributed to a high population number. And so linking the population number to the amount of deaths that are being documented. And here, now that we're having fewer you know, deaths, fewer cats being hit by vehicles. Could that be an indication that there is something uh, afoot with their, you know, their population? Um, recently, in the past couple of years, we've we have heard the agencies um, in their presentations say that some of their modeling is suggesting, for the first time in decades, that that uh, population may no longer be growing; it may be in decline, and they're not sure exactly why, but it is concerning. Yeah. So, I I mean, as you know, because you probably heard me talk about it on the radio, we're always using this 120 to 230 panthers estimated Mm -hmm. remaining in the wild. I feel like I've been using that number forever. Yeah. (laughs) For at least five or six years, I think. I mean, do we need Mm -hmm. an updated, comprehensive population count of these animals to really know what's going on? Uh, counting panthers is a difficult task, sure. <laughs> um, you know, and it's just their best guess even at that number. But I do think, you, you know, it's a, it's a great point. It's something that we've been asking to reevaluate, um, you know, if that still holds um, 120 to 230 panthers, particularly in light of some of these newer threats, these newer um, things that the panther population is enduring, like this FLM or feline leukomyopathy disease that we're seeing that could be afflicting an untold number of panthers. In um, the spring, they provided an update. This is Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and and um, said that there would be about 75 panthers and bobcats that have been documented to have um, this FLM disease. And about half of that are panthers. And so when you're talking about a large number like that over just the last five or six years, it does, for me, um, make me concerned that it could be having implications on the population level. So, so people understand how serious this is. What are the symptoms of FLM? And it's really heartbreaking to kind of see some of these videos, and and that's usually how they're they're uh, diagnosing this um, is through some trail cam videos. They they really only can confirm it when they have um, the specimen because it afflicts the spinal cord, and so they have to examine that to confirm with certainty. But the the animal would start to wobble, wouldn't be able to use their legs very well. Um, They may have to drag themselves or just have difficulty standing, walking. It's a really heartbreaking thing to to see through these trail videos. Um, And, you know, would 
panthers that are afflicted with FLM still be able to go about their daily life and hunt successfully and, you know, get around the landscape successfully. Um, we do know that the agency has had to um, remove a few individuals that were particularly had a serious case of FLM and humanely euthanize those um, individuals. Um, it's just a heartbreaking thing to see and something probably none of us could have predicted. So this could be a real threat to the stability of a breeding population. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And maybe another scary thing is how little we really know about FLM. I think that is the scariest part for me because I know that the agencies are are working um, these past years to try to get to the heart of this mystery. And I know that they've had suspects and I know that they've done a, a lot of testing um, but we just don't have the culprit yet. And of course, the quicker we can get to the, the culprit, the quicker we can get to the solution. And so I know that they have tested um, and, and theorized all sorts of different things from vitamin deficiencies to something with, you know, in the prey perhaps, or maybe something like you know, chemicals, pesticides, um, and then also looking at water, um, like uh, biotoxins from algae, for example. Wow. So this could really be coming from some toxin in the environment. And and the fact that we're seeing it just in bobcats and panthers here in Florida and not in, you know, Texas cougar populations or in populations of pumas and other parts of the world where they exist would maybe also seem to indicate this this is environmental, this is localized. It's so hard to say. But um, we don't know. Yeah. It's I'm, so hard yeah. to say, but it is um you know, a concerning thought that if it is something in the water, uh, like, you know, uh, toxins from blue-green algae, when we're, we know we have a water quality crisis already, this would just be another reason to add to the manatees, to add to our, our economy and our quality of life, so that we need to take better care of our waters. But it's such a mystery to know if it's that or any other thing. Uh, I know that the agencies have their sort of small dwindling list of suspects, but we don't have a culprit yet. And I think for me, that's the scariest part of this, that we don't know, you know what's causing this FLM. And going back to that population count, I know the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is set to complete an assessment of the Florida panther later this year, um, and then a five-year status review would be coming next spring. What would this status review entail? And, and maybe before that, any insight onto why it's so overdue? This was supposed to happen like nine years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it is it is quite a task uh, for them to to evaluate the status. And it is something like, as you mentioned, that their agencies are supposed to do for all listed species for uh, every five years. Um, and so it was 2017, I believe, where they started this process. And we do anticipate that by spring of 2024, so coming up, uh, that they'll have um, the completed five-year analysis. And that will give some thoughts um, as to whether uh, the current listing status, which is endangered level, um, if that's still appropriate or if there maybe need to be some other changes. Um, we've been advocating at the Conservancy for the panther to re retain the, the highest level of protection and we, we have been advocating that because of what we know about the immense threat of development in some of the core habitat areas. But since then, additionally, this FLM is yet another reason why we would think it would be premature to downlist or delist even the Florida panther from the Endangered Species Act. Is there really much of a concern that, you know, you know the federal powers that be would 
would actually downlist the protection status of the animal given these threats, given what we know? It's hard to say. You know, I think um, when the process started, that was kind of the indication that I was getting. Of course, you know, they hadn't made any decisions yet. So anything's possible, and that's why Conservancy is remaining vigilant on this process to make sure that the panther continues to receive that legal protection that has been successful so far. You know, um, thinking back to uh, just a few decades ago, in fact, I was just looking through some archival stuff that we had, some old reports from the 80s and 90s where the panther population was um, 22 in 1985. Yeah. And now we're at 120 to 230, which we know is a significant increase since then. But we know, obviously, our goal for the three populations, we have so much further to go. Um, but, you know, being protected under the Endangered Species Act is a big part of the success that we've had so far and uh, would be necessary to get us across that finish line. Are there opportunities within this federal species status review for organizations like the Conservancy to weigh in, or does the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just kind of go off their own data collection? Mm. Um, There was a public comment period in which I know thousands upon thousands of citizens and organizations did comment. Um, And so I know the agency's been reviewing that information Will there be another opportunity for public comment? It's possible um, in the coming uh, months and years. So stay tuned. It would definitely be something that the Conservancy would let our members and our followers um, let them know. If you sign up for our action alerts, conservancy.org slash take action. When there's a big process like that or a public comment opportunity, we like to, to make our members aware so that you can weigh in as well. All right. If you're just joining the show, we're exploring the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to opportunities, threats, and challenges facing the endangered Florida panther. And this conversation is with Amber Crooks. She's Environmental Policy Manager for the nonprofit Conservancy of Southwest Florida. If you'd like to comment on our conversation or engage with fellow listeners, again, we're on Facebook at WGCU Public Media and on X. Use the hashtag GCL. We're at WGCU. All right, Amber, we're transitioning into the ugly. Um, Just for some context, uh, Collier County commissioners have recently approved uh, a development proposal for a new town that's been dubbed Big Cypress in an eastern portion of Collier County. And the town will connect these other two villages that are also planned from the same developer, Collier Enterprises, known as Rivergrass and Belmar. I think at this point, I might just have you take it. What are your concerns with these developments? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to note that, um, you know, there's usually multiple layers to a development being approved. And there is still an opportunity to let the agencies know that these developments are in a poor location in terms of our Florida panther. The Florida Department of Environmental Protection and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, notably, are the agencies that are really, this is on their shoulders at this time to make a permitting decision for these projects. Um, In particular, Belmar is something that the Conservancy of Southwest Florida is continuing to track and ask for denial of that project. Um, That project in particular, it's only about one mile away from the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge. And that particular parcel of land is 27,000 acres. It was set aside, you know, preserved for the purpose of protecting panther habitat. It is probably the most densely utilized area by panthers in Southwest Florida. 
And, um, you know, it's only one mile away. You'll see, you know, Belmar, if it does get its approvals, they'll start to build homes and roads and, you know, more people into this very sensitive area. And so that has been a big um, concern of ours. But there are other projects as well that we're keeping tabs on. And cumulatively, these projects add up to huge totals in terms of um, degradating our um, panther habitat, our wetlands, and some some of them are very close to our public lands, lands that we like to recreate in as well. Um, there's three big uh, developments in Lee County. Um, Kingston is another one of them. It's not too far from where we sit today, John. Mm. Um, that is very close to a Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary and crew. 10,000 homes is planned for that one development. Um, so when you look at the, the three in Lee and three in Collier, we're talking about almost 10,000 acres of panther habitat and 1,000 acres of wetlands, which are, you know, uh, nature's kidneys protecting our water quality. So just from six projects, you know, we could have these huge magnitude of impacts. Wow. That's, <laughs> um, you know, kind of hyper-focusing in on the, the big cypress, Belmar, River Grass, one in Collier County. Um, this is proposed in uh, an area dubbed the Rural Land Stewardship Area, or RLSA. What is the RLSA? Yeah. The Rural Land Stewardship Area, well, it's an area of eastern Collier County. So if you think about Ave Maria, the Immokalee, it's the land surrounding um, in that area. And it's really cornered or framed by the Panther Refuge, the mm-hmm. Big Cypress, the OK Slough, some of our really significant crown jewel public lands. And so this area um, was intended to have very minimal um, development. You know, it's very agricultural and rural as it stands today. And the intention was trying to find a balance between development and these other really important um, attributes. You know, it's our breadbasket. It's areas that provide for our drinking water recharge. The areas are public lands where we like to recreate. And, of course, it's listed species, um, corridors, and habitat all throughout that area. And as I understand it, there's kind of like a credit system for developers um, where they can – it's a voluntary program. They can build more intensive towns and villages on property with lower conservation value in exchange preserving uh, this more environmentally sensitive Mm -hmm. land. Um, Is this something that you think works? Well, um, you know, that's the intention of the of the program. And one of the one of the problems that we identified along the way was this ballooning of the amount of development that could be allowed through these credits. Originally, that program was only intended to have about 16,000 acres of development, which is still a lot of development. Um, But these days, it's more like 45,000 acres of development. And it's just a really difficult area for for development and mining because of its sensitive nature. Um, And so uh, we've actually worked through the years to try to provide a, a, a best vision of where development could occur in the RLSA area to avoid some of these most sensitive and precious areas that are important to the panther. And unfortunately, a, a project like Belmar, um, it's you know, in primary zone panther habitat. And the RLSA program doesn't reflect some of that best available science that's come since then, since the program was adopted. Um, and so that's where there's sometimes a conflict between what the the local regulations stipulate and what 
really uh, is needed for best available science for the panther. And that's something, though, that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and DEP can look at. Um, so we've definitely been trying to turn their attention to the fact that this is primary zone panther habitat. It's close to the panther refuge. It's in the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And these are things that they should take a close look at. All right. Um, and, and, you know, more than 46 percent of the land in the proposed town of Big Cypress, um, you know, which would be adjacent to this Belmar village, is going to remain open space. That exceeds the county's re- uh, requirement of 35 percent. More than 12,000 acres of farmland and wildlife habitat um, is going to be preserved through the plan development proposal. And it also includes plans for affordable housing, which is so critically needed. Um, I know you're not a telepath, but I mean, do you think that might be kind of what was going on in the minds of call your commissioners whenever they gave the thumbs up to this, you know, in terms of overlooking the negatives? Oh, that's a good question, John. I'm not quite sure. Um, I know I can't ask you to speak on behalf <laughs> of the reasoning of elected officials, but I'm just saying like... You know, development is always going to be encroaching. Our state continues to grow. Housing, affordable housing in particular, is needed. Um, So that just makes your job all the more challenging. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, for the local process that we were definitely involved in is taking a look at things like um, the cost of of building these um, developments where they're at so far east where there's not a lot of, um, you know, utilities. Existing infrastructure. Existing infrastructure. And looking really closely at the costs to the public uh, for building some of these roads and building some of the the wastewater, for example. Um, You know, what we're focused on now at the Conservancy is where we do still have some opportunities with our decision makers. You know, they still need that Florida Department of Environmental Protection or FDEP permit. And DEP's even um, promised that they will provide a public meeting for those that are concerned about our public lands, that are concerned about our waters, that are concerned about the Florida panther and other imperiled species that could attend and, you know, give your two cents. And so the the date and time is to be determined yet. Uh, But if you uh, are able to sign up for our our action alerts at conservancy.org slash take action, that is another thing that we will definitely want to send out to our members and let you know of these upcoming events and opportunity for public comment. All right. So at this point, we're looking to the DEP because just because the commission, again, to be clear, has given their thumbs up, that's not the final step. That doesn't give the developer, um, you know, free reign to break ground there is still approval required from the Department of Environmental Protection. Yeah, usually there's like a local and a state and a federal process. And so that they, you know, still have an active application in with FDEP for impacts to wetlands, mm-hmm. which um, for Belmar and these other uh, river grass areas um, would be about 400 acres of wetlands to be impacted. You know, Matthew Swartz with the uh, South Florida Wildlands Association has also been a vocal opponent of these developments. Um, He's indicated that a lawsuit from his organization could be forthcoming. Uh, Is that a step the Conservancy would consider taking? I mean, you already kind of have a bit of a legal history when it comes to these specific developments. Mm. Yeah, and we also have had past suits, you know, to try to um, petition for critical habitat designation for the Florida panther. You know, so we've been very involved, you know, where we can. Uh, whether it be through advocacy or through legal routes, if um, need be, uh, like you've mentioned in the past. Um, You know, but we're 
going to be remaining vigilant on all these upcoming issues for sure. You know, the the legal status of the panther um, is an important issue for us because it affects so many other things. You know, every time that there is a development in panther habitat, whether it's, you know, big or small, there is usually consideration for um, mitigation. And so, you know, these offsets are important that we still continue to have um, in the development process. Um, And so... The listing status is a big issue for us that we'll definitely be tracking. All right. Well, that is about all the time we have for today's show, but I want to thank my guest. I've been speaking with Amber Crooks. She's Environmental Policy Manager for the Conservancy of Southwest Florida. And you can learn more about her and the Conservancy's broader environmental advocacy efforts to protect water, land, and wildlife at conservancy.org. Amber, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash GCL, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Yeah.